Welcome to another episode of Studies in Empathy, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring empathy in the patient experience. I'm your host and guest today, Adrian Boise, Chief Experience Officer here at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. I will be interviewed by Dr. Amy Green. Absolute pleasure to have her here. Welcome to Studies in Empathy. Amy, I turn it over to you. Thank you, Dr. Boise. It's great to be here with you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. In particular, I guess what I'm most interested in is your background as a bartender and a ballerina. <laughs> I'm assuming you didn't well, do those. Well, thanks for starting with At that. the same time, I'm hoping. <laughs> um, what did those roles teach you? Yeah, it's a funny thing. You know, earlier in my life, I had a somewhat of a difficult childhood, as many of us do. And I think my escape became ballet. Uh, I probably did ballet two or three hours a night all through grade school and high school. I was very serious about it and intense, constantly worried about what role I would get in the Nutcracker. And then I went off to a ballet school for high school, a performing arts school outside of Boston. And it was shortly thereafter that I realized that although I was okay, I wasn't going to be spectacularly amazing ballerina. And part of the reason for that was because I was constantly worried. I think part of growing up in that environment made me not want to rely on anybody else. Mm -hmm. So it felt really important to me to be financially viable and independent. And and I was constantly worried as a 12 or 13-year-old while at the school about what I would do to support myself if I broke an ankle or like, what would you do next? You teach ballet or you try to go back to school? So that bothered me a lot. So I actually left the school and returned to Maryland, taught ballet for many, many years, but just never quite achieved my ballerina status again. And certainly now you don't want to see me in a tutu. But uh, And then while I was in college, that sort of independence message uh, still rang true. I taught ballet at nighttime. I worked full-time at a sporting goods store. And then I um, was a bartender at night. Uh, and then after college, I did neurobiological research at Brigham and Women's for some time, and then at Boston University. And it turns out you can make a lot more money bartending than you can doing neurobiological research. It's a funny thing about society. And so... Well, that's quite a leap, though. I mean, speaking of leaps, I guess you knew how to do them, but... Yeah, well, it was a great mix for my brain. I do have a right and a left brain. And so that, that artsy side, I think, was really fulfilled by the creative potential of ballet and being swept away by the music and, and at the same time, that rigor of research. And so it fit my personality pretty mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Well, you also ended up, not to mention medical school, and you also earned a master's in bioethics. So mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about the bioethics track. Sure. And... I, did, I did walk a twisty road now that you're bringing it up. <laughs> I was constantly interested in human behavior, just why we do what we do. I think emerging out of that environment, I was constantly looking at people like, what, why are you doing that? Why are you saying that? That doesn't make any sense, doesn't feel good. And so it was really the drive to understand human behavior mm. that probably led me into neuro something mm -hmm. as a piece of what my future would be. Mm -hmm. I. I think during college was deciding whether that was going to be psychology or psychiatry or neurology, but mm -hmm. the black and whitedness, what I thought was black and white at the time, mm. uh, appealed to me about neurology. Uh -oh. And so I've <laughs> learned since it's you. much more gray uh, <laughs> and that even neurology is just a lot about 
treating human beings. So, but that was sort of the course I took. And once I decided to go to med school, it took me some time to figure that out. And then I got in and had the experience of just appreciating that we were probably missing something all the time with our patients. I was that weirdo med student sort of who would leave the room and then be worried about that blank look or sort of empty look in people's faces when we walked out of the room after dispensing all of our medical wisdom. And I found myself worrying about that, right? Like I would worry about what was going on with that family or if we had really missed the mark. And so I thought bioethics might be an interesting additional career for myself, you know, wrestling with all those tough questions that they see in ethics. And I got a master's in ethics as I was a fellow in neuroimmunology. And right about that time, the clinic was starting its movement around patients first. Mm -hmm. And Toby had come and appointed Mm -hmm. the first chief experience officer in the country. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, I just saw the light down the tunnel, that that was what I was supposed to be doing. Well, you do see the threads coming together because just as you said, the patient face, like something was on that patient's face that you no one addressed and no one said, and your curiosity was still there. Do you think that led you to your path as a chief experience officer? I think that curiosity is probably a part of it. I think a lot of times we we see behavior or do it a certain way and then assume that's just how it should be done. And I know people say that all the time, but for me, it was about pausing just to be curious. Like what else could we have said before we left that maybe would have taken that away for people? If I went back and talked to them longer, what would that do? What words would I say? I mean, so it was that, I would say it's curiosity, but also a a hunger to take some of that pain away. (laughs) You know, you have many phrases that you like, but I worry that sometimes you have to have experienced suffering to want to help ease it. And that that was a theme, I think, throughout my life. I think that's right. And uh, you're one of the first people I've heard as an experience officer to talk about suffering as much as you do. And I really appreciate that. I wonder what has surprised you most about the role you're in. And do you find that talking about suffering is surprising to other people if they think that's what patient experience yeah, even that's, is. That's a good point. I, We've worked pretty hard. I've been in this role four years. I think we've worked pretty hard and consistently hard about trying to make sure that people don't reduce the potential for what we can do around the patient and family experience to a bunch of scores that are required by the government through HCAP surveys. That's still happening across the country, and it hurts my heart because that's that's a fraction of what we do. That's a fraction of our potential, and it doesn't resonate with people, and it certainly doesn't resonate with me. So I want to go bigger than that. I want to dream bigger than that. I want to just have a different vision for what that needs to be. Yeah. And suffering is a... I don't know what other word to call it, (laughs) right? Like... It's not patient satisfaction. We don't make people happy. That's not the business of healthcare. I hear people sometimes say, I think there are these cool phrases in other industries like delight. We're creating customer delight. (laughs) And every time I hear that, I grimace probably because we're not creating moments of delight. Uh, Maybe we're making it easier for people. Maybe we're taking a bite out of their suffering. Yeah, suffer less is our goal. (laughs) Suffer less, but... 
but you're not going to wipe it from the face of mm -hmm. healthcare, mm -hmm. nor is that even an appropriate goal. Mm -hmm. So I just think we have to be diligent about bringing that word into the dialogue and making it clear to people that we're capable of much, much more yeah. than running around and getting a high score. Well, I loved your TED talk about patient experience not being a soft, fluffy thing. I don't know which one that was, but it, I was really proud. Well, it's empathy, right? Like we, we do, we keep thinking about it as this soft, magical, unicorn optional thing that goes on if you have extra time to go yeah. to a class. Yeah. And we need to think about how do you make an organization that cares? Yeah. How do you make it feel as though I'm so attuned to your experience as a patient or a family member? Yeah that I've designed my processes and systems to be more empathic. Yeah. That is the challenge in big ways. Yeah. I mean, creating the small wins is nice, leaving flowers on your bed. I think that's great. Yeah. But to me, the big empathy operationalized gestures are those making it really easy for people to get in this place, yeah. <laughs> making it really easy to get an appointment when you're worried about something, mm -hmm. making it easy to pay your bill or understand what costs you're going to be facing and your yeah. family is going to be facing, yeah. making it easy to navigate where you're going to be spending that night when your kid's in the ER. Yeah. I mean, Just knowing who to ask. Those burning yeah. questions, mm -hmm. those are opportunities for organizations to operationalize empathy. Mm -hmm. What gets you most excited about? Probably that. <laughs> <laughs> when I started this job, I would say that we spent a lot of time thinking about evidence-based best practices in patient experience. And there's only a few of them, right? It's having the nurse come when you call. It's doing bedside shift report. And a lot of them are nursing driven, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we know that overall performance in experience ratings are often associated with how your doctors and nurses communicate. Mm -hmm. Like that's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And historically we do pretty well in that, but it, I think these other pieces, we need to expand the conversation mm -hmm. to these other pain points for people. Mm -hmm. And the pain points I'm still constantly hearing about, which drive me nutty, are these types of issues. Mm -hmm. Can't get in, can't get an appointment. I'm delayed without updates. I don't know when I'm going home. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much this costs. Right. Those pieces we got to fix. Mm -hmm. So that gets me jazzed up. I think the other piece that gets me jazzed up is making sure that innovating around how we do that, right? Mm -hmm. So talk about digitizing what can be and protecting what must remain human, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We should never have an app that tells you you have cancer. Right. That makes no sense. Right. That's a moment that has, is fragile and intimate yeah. and has to be protected. Yeah. But we could probably have an app to estimate your costs yes. for your liver transplant. Mm -hmm. And so I think that thoughtful design of a journey that is based on relationships and trust and empathy that is enabled by technology where it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So but the, not replaced that by... gets me pretty excited. Yeah. I think we actively have to work against the idea mm -hmm. that tech knows best. It's not about that. It's about humans actually still matter mm -hmm. and AI can't give you a hug. Machine learning won't give you a hug. And some of the most powerful moments I have in my own career as a neurologist or as a clinician are those moments. So paying those due respect. Mm -hmm. What keeps you up 
the most at night? I mean, I've heard some of the things just now that the pain points that you recognize and you want to fix, um, you want to impact those. I, I think that's it. I think I think I've learned a lot over the last couple of years about leadership in the sense that leadership required, especially in this space, in patient experience requires a left and a right brain, right? If I just ran around the organization telling stories and giving people chocolates, uh, I think I'd last about six months. Yeah, if that. <laughs> so that operational knowledge that ability to think strategically, that ability to get some things done that maybe are hard for people to do. Uh, Especially all, for the touchy feet. <laughs> have all really been been important to success in this role. So some of that keeps me up because being a leader, although empathy is required, I think, to lead, uh, you it doesn't work for all situations, right? There are some decisions that I'm going to make that people aren't going to like, and I can do that with transparency and collective input. But that responsibility, good or bad, for the consequences of those decisions and the impact of those sits with me. And I know it doesn't feel good for people. So for me, that's hard personally about how do I <laughs> continue to lead in a way that matters while also engaging both parts of what real what I think real leadership is. It's empathy and execution. Yeah. Well, like you said. And I don't mean like the bad kind. Yeah, yeah, the bad kind. <laughs> Ability to get, get things done. done. Yeah. Well, like you said, patient, it's patient experience, not patient satisfaction. That's right. So, and, I, and I still get it. I think there still is some bias, right? Mm -hmm. I still feel like sometimes I'm working against this concept mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, You're there to make everybody happy. Well, or that that right that as the chief experience officer, I'm going to come in with unicorns and rainbows, and you know, want the magical solution without appreciating that. Yeah. I, I have I have some awareness and insight into operations and thinking in a way that's not just magical. Yeah, you have to to get anything done. Um, speaking of that, I know that um, you have some thoughts about the whole idea of the HCAP scores and kind of being driven by that and having people feel like that's the goal. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to say more about that? Well, you know, I talked just yesterday about some goals we're thinking about as an organization moving forward. We have a brilliant new CEO, Tom Mihalovic, who has really, I think, set the stage for us in terms of talking about treating patients and fellow caregivers like family. And so some of the exciting work I'm trying to do now with our partners across the system is what metrics then do we need to be held accountable for that would deliver on that promise? Mm -hmm. That's a very different question than was it quiet at night? Mm -hmm. And some of those questions probably get asked in some of the surveys that we deliver and some probably don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, because treating people like family is probably, well, it depends. <laughs> Hopefully we mean not just treating them like your own family, <laughs> yeah. but in the way that they would want to be treated. Yeah. And that requires, A, that we're asking, mm -hmm. how do you want to be treated? What are your preferences to care? Uh, what are your values around end of life or other pieces of it? And then respecting those. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very different than I think our current approach. So the metrics we're sort of noodling on are around what would it feel like to a patient to have them treated like family? 
the other buckets, I think, involve teamwork. They involve processes, making it easy for people and trust. Mm -hmm. And how can we hold every single caregiver here responsible for building those for Mm -hmm. a given patient? Mm -hmm. How would you say the field has changed while it's changing constantly and you're part of the change? How, how, it's a pretty new field. I mean, I think, as you said, the first one here was the first one. Yeah, And that was only 11 years ago or 12? I think it's much more popular than when we started. Mm -hmm. I think Toby, in a sense, was a pioneer around a vision mm-hmm. for how important this was. You know, he has two powerful stories about how that came to the forefront for him. I would sort of reference back to some of what I talked about earlier is that idea that we've emerged out of the space that there are known best practices that enhance patient experience, but the patient experience of the future will be about a much more comprehensive partnering with our patients over the lifelong journey that they have, which includes empathy, seamlessness, and personalized approaches. Mm -hmm. You heard that in our vision statement, Mm -hmm. that it needs to be consistent Mm -hmm. in our experience, whether you're at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi or London or Cleveland. Well, that's part of trust, right? It should feel the same. You should know you're gonna get treated like the way you want to be treated, yeah. no matter where you are. And I think that's part of that trust, right? That we don't miss on that promise. So uh, that's a big piece of it. I think too, just the sheer volume of information. I mean, I'm contacted, you know, gazillion times a day by vendors with best of intention who are telling me cool new ways to engage our patients or apps I can download or mm-hmm. there's lots of issues there, right? We talked about some of them, but the idea that those all have to talk to each other, right? A seamless, coordinated, individualized experience for patients is not 30 different apps that don't talk to each other. One telling you to check your blood pressure on your right arm, the other telling you to check it on the left arm, and none knows what the other is doing. And your clinician has no time to look at any of the data you've just spent three hours entering. It's complicated. So I think what's required is is really thinking about that high-touch journey, whether it's human or digital, and crafting that with our patients. Yeah, I'd love to ask you more about that because I know that like, wait time drives you nuts and you've got yeah. ideas about that. But in the interest of time, I wonder, could you tell us what one ask do you have of everyone in healthcare to build a better experience for our patients, their patients? To add to my list of Adrianisms, <laughs> I would, I would say own it. Mm-hmm. That what I see, I mean, I've gotten multiple texts just over the last couple of days of situations that have come up across our enterprise. Some about the amazing power of our caregivers and their impact that they're having on our patients. This amazing letter came through not that long ago about how we allowed a patient to dance with his wife again. And, and that's what healthcare should be doing. And that is what we do most of the time. A few of those texts were about moments that we dropped, you know, where people waited three hours without eating, mm-hmm. you know, and didn't get updates about when they were going next or how to, yep. how to navigate. Or the one I got yesterday was a, a newborn who's diagnosed with cancer and mm-hmm. the parents don't know where to stay. Mm-hmm. So it's own it that that's not my experience Mm -hmm. to fix, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Every single one of us needs to be a chief experience officer 
for the person who's standing in front of us. I like that. And that means that you own it end to end. Yeah, I like that. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was great. So I'm concluding (laughs) the Studies in Empathy podcast. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, my.clevelandclinic.org podcast. Subscribe to Studies in Empathy podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon. Thank you. Thank you.